0: Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast, exploring
1: the human side of work. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I'm fascinated with how we can imagine past the default path to do things that matter. I have conversations with entrepreneurs, freelancers, and thinkers who are questioning
0: the role of work in our lives who are thinking about how we can unlock creative potential in ourselves and organizations, and are carving new paths in the world to create a more human future of work. If you want to support the podcast,
1: check out the Patreon link in the show notes. And for more information, go to boundlesspod.com.
0: Today, I talk
1: with Andrew Taggart a practical philosopher entrepreneur and teacher he has helped raise tremendous awareness over the last several years and really been an inspiration for me about how our modern conception of work is undermining our attempts to seek out the good life welcome to the podcast andrew
2: thank you very much for having me paul
1: so i'd love to start with something you wrote uh, a few years ago in a book you titled the good life and sustaining life and in that, you quote, there may be no greater vexation in our time than the question of how to make a living in a manner that accords with leading a good life. So I'd love to start there and just maybe lay down some definitions of what do we mean by the good life?
2: Right. That book was written in 2014, and it, it might help to know that as with many books I've written, it. it, it it comes on a certain occasion, and the occasion in this case was just before teaching at a social entrepreneurship school in Denmark called Chaos Pilots. And so at the time, I was trying to think about some questions that are of particular concern for social entrepreneurs, but obviously go well beyond them. And so I titled the book The Good Life and Sustaining Life. The, there are a few basic thoughts in the book. One is that these are actually separate questions. How you sustain a human life, how it can continue to go on in its existence, differs in nature and kind from what the nature of an excellent life is. And I've noticed the various ways that we may get into in this conversation today that we muddle that distinction, running one together with another. I also suggest in that book that the good life the question of the good life has logical metaphysical priority over the question of sustaining life once you reach a certain point in your own reflections. That is, there are a number of people out there, for example, who unfortunately end up committing suicide. Despite the fact that their own material needs were met and were continuing to be met, in light of the fact that there are plenty of people who suffer from nihilism, the view according to which there's no meaning in life. And in light of the fact that there are a number of people who go through existential ennui and despair to the point of actually thinking about it suicide, all this reveals that there must be some questions in life that supersede our ability to merely survive, get by, make it, or even be successful. To your question, then the good life is really a placeholder for those sets of questions the questions concerned with what is most real, what is most ultimate, what is most worthwhile, how is it best to live. We can get into some answers that people provided to those questions, but first and foremost it's a it's a it's a dwelling place for the kinds of questions that matter most in our lives and can't easily be answered by availing ourselves, I don't think, of the kind of work that we do on an ordinary, everyday basis.
1: Right. Yeah. I think in a lot of conversations I have with people as well, this idea of the good life, I think people grasp at a maybe conceptual or ambiguous level and quickly mix it up, like you say, with the goal of sustaining life and instead kind of flip those. Uh, so I, I think you also go on or you definitely go on and say one cannot deny that the question of the good life must come before that of sustaining life. So how are people muddling those and uh, Flipping that um, especially when it comes to thinking about making an income or other things like that
2: We can think of Any number of recent coinages I was just rereading Joseph Pieper's wonderful book Leisure the base of Culture, culture book he writes in 1947 just after World War II. and Here's one example he analyzes at considerable length the neologism, the new coinage, intellectual work, or intellectual labor. And what he suggests is that 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 neologism is actually combining one kind of question, the question of good life, which goes to the, the nature and power of the intellect, with another question, the question of laboring. And he goes to show that those actually are brought together in a way that's entirely unhelpful. If, if the listeners want an updated version, we might think of new coinages such as meaningful work, purposeful work, purpose-driven work, um, mission-driven work, and you can keep going on and on in this vein, in which you begin to find words that, in the past, would have referred to questions of the good life, being brought under the aegis of work to the point of becoming adjectives for work. So, someone might ask, what's the what's the problem with that? well we'll get into that today i think in some fashion or another but one clue to what could be a problem to thinking in that way is that it limits your imagination with regard to the possibility that there are levels of consciousness or levels of awareness or ways of being that actually are far more important and indeed are much vaster than the kinds of things that can happen in and through
1: work and working. Uh, another source, which is interesting, uh, you actually introduced this to me, uh, Andre Gores, and he, mm-hmm. y- you uh, highlighted a quote he said, which is the imperative need for a regular income is used to persuade people of their imperative need to work, um, and at, I've, it's been interesting coming up against this in my own uh, journey, and people will invoke the. I, the modern phrase is almost, uh, when are you going to get serious? Mm. Um, and that is so closely linked to, you need to have a steady income um, to be taken serious. And it's uh, it's been pretty interesting how people have brought that up. Have you encountered other um, attacks or uh, questions that people ask in this type of vein?
2: That's a good one. Right. You need to have steady income they uh, they will also usually there's some reference though unbeknownst to themselves to the process work ethic. You're just if you're not working then you're sure if you're not working in a sense of being gainfully employed, a sense we may want to talk about in this conversation today, then you're probably lazy or uh, or you're a trust fund kid or you're uh, idle or there are any number of ways of pathologizing or moralizing. Uh, And it's amazing the degree to which, as you might've noticed in what the other person was saying, that's actually coming from a place of anxiety, I think. So one of the things you can actually do if if, um, you're confronted with someone who says, well, when are you going to get serious? is to ask that person, where is that statement actually coming from? I know that's a point about meditation, but my hunch is that the person is feeling quite anxious in some way about the status of his or her own life. I I strongly doubt that that person is caring for you for your own sake and wanting what's best for you. After all, we can go on a little bit and think about the need for steady income, and we can imagine any number of places and times in which, A, people weren't gainfully employed, the, the podcast listener might not know that before the 19th century being gainfully employed that is having a job was not the standard it's a fairly recent standard that we've adopted and it's become hegemonic that is it's taken over the way we think about what it is to work people haven't always had steady incomes people have lived with all kinds of of, of um, ups and downs of unsteady flows to my mind, that's, that's not just an a economic question. It's, it's a constitutional question. You might say a question of philosophy and meditation. How do I actually go about leading a life that is attuned to the kinds of uncertainties, the kinds of perturbations, the kinds of ups and downs and flows that seem to be a fundamental part of the way the reality actually operates?
1: Right, and there's a lot to unpack. I mean, several people have written about the history of work, and one thing you've written about is both, and you touched on this a little earlier, which is the Protestant tradition, but Mm -hmm. also the role of time and how our conception of that has shifted and really contributed to, when when you raise these points, a lot of kind of silly phrases we use about managing our time, optimizing for that and uh, might even lead to some of the anxiety we're feeling today so I'd, I'd love to um, maybe you could just break down some of the uh, concepts ar- around how religion and time have uh, led to our current state and conception of work
2: well my point of departure is is, is pretty far afield from something as mundane as work and that is the loss of a picture of the world of the universe, a picture in which human beings used to be, well, let's use, use Christian language, used to see themselves as being created beings, created in the light of the Creator. There used to be very common dualistic metaphysics in which there was this world and there was the other world. There was what Ecclesiastes calls living under the sun, and there were things that were above the sun. It's, it's commonly said that Darwin and Nietzsche and Freud end up being great deconstructors because they end up at least give, being given credit for toppling a metaphysic, a metaphysic that used to hold out the idea that when you see your life or you see yourself, you see it in the light of something that is well beyond yourself. You can call that God, you can call it an afterlife, you can call it another world or whatever. This is very important for various reasons, but one way it's important is in the context of time. Once you have the collapse of any sense that there's anything beyond our ordinary and daily cares and concerns, then you also lose the possibility of there being a sense of time that's eternal or a sense of time that doesn't function according to the dictates of clock time with a before and an after something that can be actually standardized and made uniform, as happens in the 19th century. Well, that becomes uh, quite troubling, because sh- there's no way, therefore, to even talk about, let alone to, to put ourselves in the context of experiences that seem to be atemporal or eternal. Right. But when you don't have that, then you have a sense of life that's totally anxious, or in one of the articles I wrote, it's a sense of time famine. If there's no sense whatsoever of anything that allows you to lose ordinary time and gain a kind of presence for eternity, then you're only left with, and I may go on, if it's the case that you also think that the only reality is the one described by scientific materialism, which would hold that this is the only life you have, then you're you're suffused with a kind of restlessness so that now that language is popular words like i don't want to waste my time time is a scarce resource these are new ideas time is a scarce resource i need to figure out how i'm going to spend my time think about the metaphors here and i might always be behind the number of tasks i need to perform and the kinds of things that i need to do It's a a sense of life being overwhelming and of time being the kind of antagonist that that is ruling your life in ways that are totally um, inhospitable for a good life. And that's that's the kind of frenzy, as one conversation calls it, the frenetic mind. That's the kind of frenetic mind that's developed when you no longer have any kind of contact with a sense of reality where that is not the case. It's hard to even put these things into words, given the the degree to which we've lost a metaphysic or a picture of the world in which human beings used to be able to dwell and reside and find themselves. I'll just I'll just quote Pieper offhandedly. He says that acedia, which is one of the afflictions of a modern age, is not defined as uh, idleness or whatever. He says acedia, which is a Latin term, is actually trying to describe being, quote, in disagreement with oneself. So we can put this all together and say that our our sense of modern time is rather like a a clue or symptom of the degree to which we're in discord with ourselves, we're in disagreement with ourselves.
1: So with Pieper, I'd be curious just to know, when, when did these ideas start to resonate and kind of stir around and uh, as you wrote them? I mean, over the past year, I think this idea and concept has definitely struck a chord with many people. Um, I share your article from Aon, um, if work dominated your every moment, would life be worth living? And this article seems to be r- really hit on a painful point for, pe- for people. Um, but when was it discovering Peeper or this idea of Total Work or the conversations you're having with people? When did this all start to uh, pop up for you and say, I need to to start uh, writing and putting this out there?
2: That's a really great question, and that might get us a little bit into the autobiography. It's interesting that, and I'll I'll preface my remarks by saying, it's, it's really interesting that I read Peeper, I think, as early as 2014, and I thought it was an interesting, interesting short book, a, a fascinating short book, but it didn't yet resonate with me or touch on. And I, and I read it again, I think, in 2016, and also it was also also it was a wonderful book and it was illuminating, but it didn't quite grip me or grab me. It was only in uh, April 2017. That I began to to wake up to what he was really saying. I could feel it more in my heart, you might say. And this is because I had read this is this is a nice little mystical story. uh, My wife, Alexander, had sent me a very trivial newspaper article that appeared in the New York Times in April 2017. The article simply had to do with people who were retiring in the united states and it was suggesting that people who were retiring would be better off at least working part-time it was giving what might be called an instrumental account of work work is good for various sorts of things it's good for your health it was argued it's good it's good for us having a sense of friendship or community it's good for having a sense of purpose and so on and from a certain point of view it's that's just common sense right and it's not something that's it's not a. it's you know if you just read it as a newspaper article it's fine it's trivial it's, it's something thing but I but I saw it kind of, I had a had a gestalt shift the gestalt shift is I could finally see what people was getting at and, and, and it made me want to throw my computer across the room i was so angry with this I was so angry with it and the anger as you might know is totally disproportionate from what I described so when something is a rule of thumb is that if you feel an emotion that's disproportionate with the situation Hannah, there's probably something very important to investigate there and what I began to realize is that I could I could go back and see the conversations and have the conversation partners who are living all the way around the world and some are living in San Francisco and Silicon Valley some are living in New York many of which are scattered throughout the world and I could begin to see that the kinds of things they were talking about began to be in intelligible in the light of people's ideas about total work. So the first time I thought, wait a minute, could it actually be the case that what total, what, what, what Pieper prophesied in 1947, I'm using that word a little bit loosely here actually is coming to pass now that we actually are living in an age of total work. So it's something like a gestalt shift. It's like, Holy shit. Right. This is not just an interesting book, Right. This is you know, among the many interesting books in my bookshelf. It's not just an interesting book detailing a particular period of time in Germany after World War II and wondering about what leisure could be and how it could be a state of the soul. You know, and saying some things that I feel are really antiquated, I thought, holy crap, he's actually speaking to us. It's that moment when I thought something has to be written about this. And, and then I wanted to think it's simply not enough. And this happens often with people who have some kind of mission or in the Buddhist sense service in life. They begin to realize that it's really not enough just to talk one-on-one to people. And, and, and so I thought the, the, the one way to try to bring this out into the public sphere, and it should be borne in mind that I had been living quite reclusively from around 2013 to 2017, pretty, pretty, pretty reclusively. I felt that it was so strong that it needed to be brought out into public sphere that <laughs> left behind a certain kind of contemplative reclusiveness. The things that I've been writing about before that uh, had to do more with kind of the nature of higher reality, you know, questions of philosophy and mysticism. Um, and I can talk about what that means. It's a strange transition to make to go from from a fairly secluded. Remote contemplative life to one in which I was confronting what I thought was not the only affliction but surely one of the great afflictions of our time with, in a, with, a, with a kind of ruthlessness you might say or a kind of in your face this. so it was a very strange transition for me to,
1: to make from,
2: from the first to the, to the second
1: yeah and you use the f- phrase practical philosopher to describe yourself mm-hmm. I, I think just in terms of uh, seeing that on the other end It, it does make you appear uh, At least approachable um, And also The way you write is just very accessible Is that um, Was that a conscious choice as you uh, Left academia and started Writing a little more publicly and then Even more so with total work
2: Yes I think that um, That would take a while To go through the, the history of philosophy Practical philosophers I'm not the only one who's used it, but it's not used very frequently today, so far as I can tell. The, the trouble begins, according to some historians, such as Pierre Ardo, historians of philosophy, at the end of the medieval period, The if you go back to ancient Greece, or if you go back to India, or, or if you go back even to China, you find that philosophy, whether it's the kind espoused by Socrates or Plato or you know, on the philosophical side, the Buddha or Lao Tzu or Confucius is, is, is imminently practical. It is concerned. And by practical, I mean, it's concerned with the questions of how to live, what our conduct in life is, what right. is wisdom? What is it to lead a wise life? It's not that they didn't ask other questions, They did ask questions about what what is ultimately real, metaphysical questions. They asked questions about about logic. They asked all sorts of questions. But as business people will say, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, (laughs) philosophy, at the end of the day,
1: the joke. Got to make a profit. Yeah,
2: yeah, 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 right. Well, philosophy was was grounded in the search for a good life, for leading wisely, for, for leading the best kind of life. Not just on one's own, but it turns out in schools around other people. So that's the tradition I'm trying to recuperate in the modern world. The trouble is that uh, philosophy, as it wends as it kind of its way through the West up until, uh, up until modernity, loses, loses, you might say, faith and loses track of itself to the point at which today, if you talk to someone about philosophy, Usually, you'll have some, usually you'll have to clear up a lot of misconceptions. One misconception is that it's an overly interest in theorizing. Another misconception is that it's only interested in asking questions, and never in answering them. Another misconception is the only sort of thing that experts in a university do. And you can go on through all these different misconceptions. And and uh, so, practical philosopher was an attempt kind of um, a, a creative attempt to try to move, I think it's redundant, frankly, but to try to move philosophy back to its roots right. without having to go through, a, as I've been doing right now, a very lengthy dissertation on what happened to philosophy such that it lost its way and no longer became relevant to the cares and concerns of ordinary people. So that's where I came up with practical philosophy. It, it tries to give it tries to give someone the sense that philosophy is actually grounded in something, roughly speaking, practical. Now right. it's not gonna it's not you know it's not practical in the sense that it's going to help you build a bridge, but there are other uses of the word practical that, that Americans in particular are, are familiar with, namely something that can be quote applied to their lives. That would be considered practical.
0: Right. So. B-
1: Staying on that theme, I think you've written in, in a way that makes um, some of these questions of what is a good life and sustaining life, it, at least for me, easy to grapple with. You write about making a living and mm-hmm. you break it down into really three things. Uh, use what you've got, exchange what's in hand and offer what you can. So how could people think about uh, those three things as they might pertain to even work they're doing in a job or, or other things in uh, life?
2: Right. So moments ago we were thinking about uh, we were thinking about philosophy and one of the things it does is it, sh- it helps us shine a life on what's most, most worth living. That would be the question of a good life. So maybe the most the life that's most worth leading is attuned to, to wisdom or beauty or justice or the sacred or I guess we can just call it meaning. There are all sorts of answers to that. Suppose you begin to think about that and you think, hang on a second, I need to somehow find a way to create the conditions of possibility for my continuing to, to, to deepen that investigation into beauty. I think we can make this more concrete. Suppose it's the case I'm an artist and I want to make beautiful things. That's wonderful. Well, how do I go about actually making a living? And I take the word making a living to be a neutral way, a fairly neutral way, or having a livelihood as a fairly neutral way of talking about the question of sustaining life. And, I, and when, I, when I thought about this more, I considered, I, I considered that there could be three ways. And they can all be compatible with one another. So the, the, f- the first way, well, maybe we can set this aside for a moment. We can say, hang on a second. People are, are narrowly con- confusing something like having an income with having a livelihood. Right. A livelihood can be considered a very neutral, broad term, which effectively says I'm able to survive and able to support those who depend upon me. And if you want, you can even care I'm able to reliably survive and reliably support those who care upon me. So if we take that, then we can ask the question a broad way. If we ask the question, how do I get a good income, then we're already stuck with some answers such as, oh, I need to have a full-time job provided by a particular kind of organization, and therefore I need to live in a particular kind of place. You get a whole suite or a whole way of life, a whole way of being in the world that comes out of asking that question. So we're trying to ask a broader question here. So there there's to be three different answers in there. They can be woven together in various ways. The first is an answer that comes from indigenous peoples and people who have lived off the land. It holds that it actually is possible to use the land in a wise and considerate and careful way. That might sound as if it's far afield from the lives that you and I are leading, but it's not necessarily. There still are people who live, on, who, who live in eco-villages. There are people who, in the 60s, we saw a back-to-land movement. I think today we're starting to see some back, back-to-land. There are people who are trying to live closer to land, maybe not on its own, but in concert with the other two. There's a, there's a poet named Wendell Berry who's been writing poetry for many years, quote, The Good Life. Meanwhile, he's actually been a farmer for quite some time, sustaining life. So that's the first one. There are various ways in which we can think about living off the land. The, the second one is there are various ways we can think about not, not being gainfully employed in a narrow sense but exchanging the sorts of things that are valuable in the marketplace. The marketplace, by my lights, is not necessarily a terrible thing. It's just a limited endeavor. So we need to learn how to use, we need to learn how to be involved in fair exchanges with other people. That could mean Given that you're a freelancer, um, being involved in exchanges of value that provide some kind of service in exchange for money. There's nothing inherently the matter with that. But it may not be the end of the story. What if it's the case you live in a place with a low standard of living? right? So you're able to live off the land in a certain way, or maybe it's the case that you live off the grid. Meanwhile, you're able to be involved in forms of exchange with people that allows you to have some money coming your way. And there's a third way the way that people are, are very unfamiliar with, and it involves the concept of the gift in a broad sense. If you begin to analyze certain kinds of ways of making a living or certain livelihoods, you notice that there have been people who have been involved in non-tit-for-tat relationships, in relationships that are not predicated on exchange or in forms of equivalence. And these are pretty obvious when you hear them. You can share something, with someone you can share all sorts of things with someone and if you want to you can take a heuristic if you can share something with someone and you did that in lieu of buying it then you're involved in gift you can lend something to someone without interest so maybe i go over to my to to my neighbor's house and and she offers to lend me some tools and I have to buy them and then i can just give them back when i'm done and you can be involved in various forms of gift maybe that would be one we'll talk about further So I live in a gift economy, and that does involve receiving money from people all the way around the world. But the money I'm receiving is in order to sustain my life. It's not in exchange for um, something I have or have not provided that person with. So let's just imagine that you try to put these together. Then you might say, look, can can I live in such a way that's closer to the earth, closer to the land? That's one question. Another question is, can I be involved in certain forms of exchanges that are fair-minded and equitable? And third is, can I also be involved in certain kind of relationships in which exchange is not the principle by which we live? And frankly, that's the basis for all sorts of relationships in life. We just forget these. If you're right. involved in forms of, if you...
1: Any, anyone in a family can, I think...
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, definitely it's, it's, understands
1: it's, this intuitively.
2: If you have a family, to be sure, if you have friends. And I think what's a bit tragic is that I don't see why we can't we can't actually broaden the circle of trust, you might say. Such that it includes people who with whom we can be on friendly terms. So it's a bit of a bourgeois assumption that I can only be involved in gift relationships with family. Or with family and quote, close friends. Why can't I actually expand that circle of trust? It's easier if one is involved in a religious tradition, because then you just say we're members of a church, for example, members of a synagogue, and you're more apt to be able to engage in forms of gift. But there's really no reason, especially today is an interesting time, in which you actually couldn't expand that circle of relationships, that different kind of economic uh, flow. With people who with whom you can become friendly
1: Yeah, and I, I wonder if also I think especially in the West or is, and in uh, the u.s I think things have almost geared so much towards number two exchange what's in hand and mm-hmm. Focusing on exchanging time for work
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, That it's almost led to a failure of imagination rather than people's um, inability to do these things is that something that resonates with the conversations you're having with people? It
2: does. I can give you one example that helps to bring this out, brings out the assumptions. So, usually I speak with people for a number of years, but once in a while someone will write to me and, and see whether or not I, I'd be interested in having just one conversation with him or her. And this happened with someone living in Eastern Europe who happens to be from the United States. And so I had the conversation with this person, and it seemed as if it was a nice conversation. And, and I, I will usually send someone extensive information about the gift economy. This person said, I don't really understand, even though we've talked about it a little bit, uh, I don't really understand the gift economy. In fact, I, I, disagree, I disagree with it. Yeah, it was really interesting email to received this is very common i'm just trying to bring up the assumption i'm not trying to right. pick on pick on this fellow uh, it's just a very common assumption he said i think of gifts as this kind of thing that you give for no apparent reason kind of spontaneously so that's one condition another condition is that you you um don't expect anything in return and he went on in this fashion and this is very puzzling because if you think <laughs> think of your birthday, right? Right. You you have the expectation that your parents will give you something. You don't know what it is, perhaps, but they will. It'd be strange to say, actually, I had the expectation you're going to give me something on my birthday, and therefore that nullifies it as a gift. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. There are all sorts of times in which gifts are not necessarily unexpected. They, they are expected. And so he ended up, ended up trying to... Um, give money to me in the form of exchange based on the idea that it was a service. I bring this up because this is a very common assumption people make. So it was based on kind of the value I gave to him and the amount of time I quote spent with him. It's interesting because it's not that he gave very little, he gave you know a fine number, but it, it didn't feel very good. And there's a, so, so there's a phenomenology of giving and receiving that differs in nature and in kind from the phenomenology of being involved in transactions. The transaction is clean, it's frictionless, it comes with certain kinds of expectations, and if anything you feel a bit relieved when when someone pays pays your invoice, right? You feel a bit burdened until that happens. There's a whole set of experiences associated with that. That actually is much different from what it's like to receive a gift from someone who wants to actually support the life that you're leading. it's really nice. Once you have the flavor of those two, it's, it's kind of hard to go back. You can still, right. you can still be okay with being involved in exchange, but it's, it's, it's like, it's like having some nice food, but then you have creme brulee over here. <laughs> 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 the, it's amazing. I'm sure you've had this experience, even right. like PayPal. I'm sorry. Or with, um, Patreon. It's not a great example, but at least it gives you some flavor. Wow, someone out there, someone I don't even know, wants to support my life, and not because I did something in particular. It's because there's some hint that there's something about the way that I'm living, the way that I'm living this person wants to support. So that brings us full circle back to the question of good life and sustaining life and how you lead a good life and how you're able to support that life in a way that's, quote, consonant with the
1: good life that you're really leading, right? That that definitely resonates for me as well. I've I've found the upsides of the relationships through the gift um, have just been well beyond what I've expected. I think a lot of my conversations or relationships with people have turned into something that you're you're almost both acknowledging at the beginning that okay, this is a long term. Um, relationship where we kind of believe in each other. We don't know what will come of it, but it's mm-hmm. uh it's that commitment, and it's pretty powerful. Um, and just it's almost the the other side of it is it's a little scary when people believe in you too. Um, so it's, no. it's almost easier to avoid these type of relationships. I think this is why a lot of people reject. Uh, the gifts when you offer them things because it does have that binding effect and it's like, well now I need to uh, in, invest uh, not to overly use the uh, <laughs> a Financial language or anything in that relationship
2: Right, it's it, it, it can't but be for lack of a better word more intimate so gifts as Lewis Hyde in his wonderful book called the gift points out are such that they entangle us more with one another. When you go and purchase something at a convenience store and you use your credit card, you're doing something that's just fine, right? You're just transacting. I have no I have no I have no truck with that. The the key to it is that it's clean. You have no relationship with the worker there. No problem. When someone gives you a gift, there is a kind of magnetism or there's more energy associated with that gift because it's not about a clean cutting off quite the contrary it's about greater entanglement you're going to be more involved with that person if i may use the word debt here in a metaphorical sense uh, so not in a a financial sense you there is a kind of there is a kind of unpaid um, not the right language here but there is a way in which you are always already indebted to one another and you can never quite get out of that there are ways of of having a beautiful conclusion in the relationship for sure but it's the the key to gift is the ongoingness of the relationship the indefinite ongoingness of that relationship so yes the 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 one reason people may not be ready for it is that it's just it takes off a lot of guardrails. We've spoken about some of them already, but it keeps taking off more and more guardrails, the sorts of things that we're familiar with. And by doing so, it, it requires more trust on both of our parts, and it invariably brings about greater intimacy, or at least a greater closeness, if you want to use that word instead.
1: So I'd I'd love to get back to some of the the guidance you've offered in terms of uh, sustaining life and uh, making a living. And I I think you might be one of the first philosophers who's writing, giving advice such as read up about the gig economy. Um, But you also offer different perspectives such as do a wide range of things, um, begin a practice in living, cultivate good manners. Um, consider being nomadic just so you'll have less stuff. Um, So there might be two questions there. One is just what are some of the modes of living that you've experimented with in your own uh, journey over the past uh, five or so years? And uh, have these evolved or different perspective on these in the past couple of years?
2: Yes. Uh, So. I used to live in New York City on the Upper East Side, not far from Central Park. And that was, and, and my, my now wife and I moved from New York City at the end of 2012. And we moved not to, <laughs> to San Francisco or Seattle, but rather to rural Appalachia, down the tip of very tip of Tennessee.
1: That's probably not a common move. <laughs> no,
2: it's not. Yeah, we moved into almost almost complete isolation. No, it's not a common move, and I'm not necessarily. This is not where the advice part comes in necessarily. Uh, it, it was sensed it was it was wonderful though because it was the first time that we started meditating uh, quite quite religiously. So this was not really 2013. And I think it helped us to challenge a number of assumptions about place and dwelling. So it was since that time that we started to live rather seasonally nomadically, picking up and moving on and seeing what a new place might have in store for us. And um, that was made possible uh, in part by the fact that I began to realize just from a practical point of view that it was actually easier today to have philosophical conversations over Skype or what's now Zoom than it was to have them in person. So the very fact that that I could speak with someone while I'm in Appalachian, the person could be also living nomadically, and at one point could be in Bali, another point could be in in South Africa, another point could be in San Francisco – made it possible for there to be those entanglements I was referring to before. And those entanglements, I I think this is really quite an interesting paradigm shift. Neither person needs to be a settler at that point in order to maintain a relationship. And they don't have to meet face-to-face. The example I commonly use is that of, of, let's say, a barber. If if, if one of your clients moves, that's the end of that relationship. If you move, that's the end of your entire business. Right, you have to start over. Imagine it's possible to cut hair in such a way that you're in either in one location at one time, and the other person, you know, you are in one location, the other person's in another location, and the next time you're in a different location, and the next time the other person's in a location, and so on and so forth. So I should just mention that as an aside. That's the backdrop to uh, yeah. our experiments in nomadism.
1: Yes? Some, someone in the tech industry just took that as an idea. <laughs> to, uh, yeah yeah right work, <laughs> exactly work on an ai solution
2: yeah right <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's, it's, yeah spot on uh, well since that time we were living um, quite nomadically experimenting with being in different places mostly in the united states i could say more about that but nomadic living for us is not quite the same as the digital nomad who's picking up well, quite frequently, and moving on, moving on. Let's say once every couple of days, or once every couple of weeks. We actually would be in a particular location for three months, or four months, or five months, in part to see whether or not we wanted to be there longer.
1: Right, and
2: now that you had two yeah, questions
1: there, no, I, I think that's interesting. It's um, how are you thinking about just? I think you we almost hear the extremes of things. We see, okay, now you can be this digital nomad and use that as a reason to just constantly move. Um, how do you think about balancing that with trying to invest uh, or dedicate time to your local communities and still building those relationships? How have you guys approached that um, in it's, the places you've the, been? I
2: think that's one of the biggest open questions that's, right. that's worth asking. One and that question goes all the way back to the beginning of civilization. Uh, a, a historian and futurist, your, your podcast listeners might be familiar with, is Yuval Harari, mm-hmm. who, whose first book I think is much better than the second one, the first book on sapiens. And he describes, as does um, James C. Scott's book Against the Grain, how civilization begins to build itself around 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, with the advent of, of agriculture, single-grain agriculture. Um, the reason I'm bringing this up is that that's the beginning of settlerism. Right? That civilization tends to require settlement. It, it, and it, so that's an assumption, you might say, in the background until quite recently. The assumption is that you might say a good life is the one that's settled in the context of a particular kind of community. It's one way of answering the question. And nomads of, of, and, and gypsies and people who are roaming have tended to be seen as being questionable, of questionable status at best, right? Not necessarily to be trusted. I, I, I'm bringing this up because it's, a, it's an amazingly fascinating question that today we're going to be, through this particular set of historical, cultural, and economic conditions, we're able to re ask that question again. And the question is, well, what is the Is it better to be a nomad than a settler? What kinds of nomadisms are available to us? What kind of settlerism is available to us? And How do we begin to get that right? I know to answer your question. So now I'll come to my own life It's still an open question for me and my wife but I think against the backdrop of this is something that another writer named uh, Robert Bella has spoken a lot about he's a late sociologist who talked particularly in the 1970s and 80s about the loss of community in american life so if if you're looking for as we are in part the kind of place where you can become rooted at least for part of the year then it's not necessarily clear as of yet that community exists consider by contrast the case of um, mark zuckerberg continues to talk about facebook bringing about quote connections and community but i have no idea what a global community means that's a <laughs> neologism right <laughs> and what in the world what in the world does that possibly mean you have examples that you can come up with when you when you envision a community you might envision a community along the lines of what um this new yorker writer wrote about in a piece on orange city iowa it still exists it's a place where people ordin- that's it's multi-generational it involves there being neighbors who come by when you're sick. It involves gossip, right? It mm-hmm. involves a certain conformity. It usually involves a certain um, uh, religious uniformity, right? and so on. You can begin to imagine that, but apart from Orange City, Iowa, where do you actually see that existing? So I haven't, on our travels, we haven't seen a lot. We haven't seen too much of this. Too much of the idea that there is actually a rooted, grounded community that is a multi-generational character in which people, of, of people are coming together, not just for the sake of mutual interests, but because they've got each other's back, you might say. They've got each other's backs. So to me, these are questions that are being thrown into the air in what I call an unsettled time. We're unsettled because... We don't know whether it's best to be a settler. We don't know whether it's best to be a nomad. Witness, witness the growth of we work, of Rome, of other co-working spaces and co-living spaces. Right, witness, witness that phenomenon. And we also don't really know what community is. I think our language is actually is deceptive here. The more we speak about community, the more we speak about folks, about there being folks, <laughs> the less encounters we actually have. Right, communities and folks
1: yeah it's a it's an interesting question it almost as i'm thinking about this it almost brings me back to the idea of total work because Mm -hmm. uh i this community you're describing could be a good descriptor of a small town i grew up in in connecticut and a lot of it still has that but without a lot of my generation because my generation's success was really going to the city and getting these jobs. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to see, um, the generations before me, everyone is, is still there and does have that close knit community, but then it's very fragmented when you get to, um, our age because we're spread out all over and, um, I mean, we, we have a lot of conversations, at least within our family, like, how do you sustain this? Every, everyone's living almost even on the same street. And uh, it's, it's very bizarre to be having these conversations because you're balancing that with the definition of what success is, which is highly tied to work. Um, with
2: work, work increasingly in the city. Yeah.
1: Right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there, there aren't a lot of uh, jobs uh, where I grew up. But it's interesting to hear that, um, be having that conversation, and also just be knowing um, what people accept as uh, what is seen as the right thing to do for people. Um, So
0: that's...
2: And then just to add to that, that particular movement has been really well described by any number of people. um, Carl Polanyi in his book *The Great Transformation* writes about how, in the early industrial period, we begin to see the forcible uprooting of people from the countryside and their, and their subsequent movement into the city. You can—that's just one example. Raymond Williams in his book *The Country and the City* describes this relationship as well, uh, as does a recent book called *War: of The Last Thousand Years*, in which we continue to see the movement from embeddedness in a small town or a village on the countryside and the shift to that city, and you can look at it in China. You mean the the industrial, the the, the seemingly inevitable industrialization process gives rise to these kinds of movements. Economists think this is a total upside. Uh, I think that I take a more measured view. It does allow for some people to disembed themselves from... The, the, the problems with a small town community, both of us, I suspect, are weirdos, right? <laughs> I agree. Right? That's, that's, yeah, I, <laughs> I like that word, right? I mean, I'm using that in a kind of a, a cheerful way. We're weirdos. We're a bit strange. Well, small towns tend to be quite conformist in nature. They're, they're a bit rigid. So there, there, there certainly are upsides to the, having that energy flow the people movement, the movement of people into more cosmopolitan spaces, such as New York City. It was wonderful the kind of people I met there. So there is an upside, but but people don't usually account for the downside, the various downsides. I think that's most evident, for example, in the case of the elderly. So how exactly are we going to care for elderly people as they continue to live longer and as families are no longer caring for them? You might say, well, it's obvious it's Category 2. We talked about that. It's exchange. Right. But yeah. I'm seeing my grandmother right now who's, who's nearing the end of her life, and she's going through various kinds of institutions as her health continues to erode. And that is not the kind of death. If we're thinking about the good life, I mean, what is it to lead a good life? What philosophers used to say is that to lead a good life was to lead the kind of life in which you'd also have a good death. When Tanya the Renaissance philosopher thought that a good life is most evident when it came to how you died this this this, um, this 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 desire for success this movement to the city is is kind of the negative externality so to speak is that we have certain kinds of um, the rich social embeddedness, the rich social texture of life is being frayed. We don't yet have tech solutions, so to say, right? I'm being a little bit cheeky here, but we really don't have tech solutions or some other social innovation solutions to, to overcome these problems with the result that, that loneliness among the elderly is, is quite high. And I would also say that loneliness among all sorts of people is quite high
1: Right, and it, it's interesting you touch on tech again. Maybe we dive into that a little. But I mean, I've heard jokingly uh, people say, "Oh, when I get old, we'll just get a," uh, or "When you get old, we'll get a um, medical robot for you mm-hmm. to take care of you." Um, it's already on the way in China, so just, you know the wait. Yeah. Right, and I'm I'm sure Japan as well with its uh, elderly uh, aging population, but. Um, you, you speak with a lot of people in the tech industry, um, and having these conversations around the deeper philosophical and ethical questions. Um, and it does seem, I mean, if you just follow the big questions they're facing, they just seem to be totally missing the mark. Um, so so what's coming up in these conversations and, um, what, um, what should they be or how should they be, uh, framing some of these questions?
2: Great question. I I recently started a, a an LLC called a which is from the ancient Greek meaning the withdrawal from leisure, which also means work. It's kind of an inside joke of sorts. Uh, I started a as a way of explicitly trying to talk with sea level executives and startup teams about the kinds of assumptions they have surrounding. The technology they're trying to bring into the world, and it seems to me that we're at a time at which technology so it used to be the case that you could say that Silicon Valley was the kind of the nerdy kid who was rebellious, as some articles point out. Well, now it's the case that it's no longer the nerdy kid, not nerdy, rebellious kid, it's the kid in power, right? What's more as Tristan Harris has pointed out over the last couple of years in his campaign against, against um, social media and phones insofar as they're hijacking our attention, is that the, 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 it, it's, you can no longer take the innocent, naive line that it's just technology, that it's just a platform that's utterly separate from and therefore not at all nested within broader cultural, ethical, and political questions. Uh, I think we're at a point that's quite awkward, so to say, because I don't think based on what I've heard that a lot of people in positions of power and technology necessarily have the, the ability to think through these broader questions, even as they can't help, but be confronted with them. So that's, that's an awkward moment. It's a moment what I might call a great muddle. It's a great muddle when you can't, you can you can't just sweep the questions aside. You remember Mark Zuckerberg talking before Congress. And it was just a, it was a muddled kind of answer. Right. So you can't sweep the questions aside, but you don't yet have the ability to, to think about them very clearly. That, to me, is an amazingly interesting time. And so we don't yet know the answers to those questions, but the questions themselves need to be raised over and over again and with greater urgency. It's,
0: well,
1: it's almost also just a lack of the right language to discuss these because everything is so tech and financialized that uh, I think philo- philosophy gives a uh, door to a different type of words or language to uh, describe these. I think that's also why somebody like David Graeber seems to be resonating because he's coming at it as a uh, anthropologist. And, uh, and some of these different models just give that... Um, different words or even word phrases like total work do help reframe or rethink some of these discussions.
2: Right. What this is an obviously I don't want to say too much about an instrumental case for liberal arts. I'll be, I have a piece coming out next month in courts in which I'll be talking about the liberal arts tradition. So what I don't want to say and what follows is simply the liberal arts are quote, good for business. They are, but that's not their chief concern. But let's suppose that we we want to speak secondarily the liberal arts as being um, good in these places. That's because it is good. That is, it does bring to bear a a wider vocabulary with which to discuss society, psychology, philosophy, um, even religious assumptions. Take take one word as a as as an example. The word impact. Or scale but let's go stick with impact impact is a word that probably only makes sense based on consequentialist assumptions now in philosophy consequentialism is the ethical view which holds that you want to bring about the best possible consequences or at least the least um, the least undesirable consequences or the most good or at least bad overall so You can only understand the the fetishization of impact, or of social impact, or of technological impact. You can only understand that as a kind of fetish if it's a case that you already presuppose that you only want to look at the magnitude of your consequences. But that is not the only way to look at any action whatsoever. You can look at it in terms of what Kant would call, I mean what later on is called deontology, namely the intention behind the action. Or you can look at it in terms of the one that I'm interested in, which is which is ancient virtue ethics. It holds that you look at actions in terms of the virtues that are being exercised in the salient case at hand. This is but one example. It's but one example in which the vocabulary is way too thin to talk about the impact, let's say, or, or the understanding or the significance of self-driving cars.
1: Right. Right. Um so you might have I think I have uh people that listen to this who are in traditional corporate worlds and they might say all right these these are great ideas I had a good time listening to this conversation but to to that population that might say I can't just quit my job um how how can somebody cultivate more of this philosophical mindset, or just um, one or two small practices they could um, do to perhaps move slightly further away from uh, total work?
2: Oh, yeah, that's that's a lovely question. So I don't even think you necessarily have to quit your job to start off
1: with, right? And you,
2: <laughs> to be sure, right? This is, this is you can begin very very simply incrementally. One thought you can begin to have, or an exercise you can perform, would be called disidentification. What you can do, for example, is begin to take your work less seriously in virtue of disidentifying from the identity with the worker. So, Total Work's basic premise is that we are all workers. I mean, workers from first to last. When you introduce yourself to someone, almost invariably you will ask the person's name and then you'll go on to ask what the person does for a living that's that's a presupposition that's revealing total work and practice so you can begin by just saying hang on a second i can actually perform the work that i'm doing for as long as i'm doing it at least for the time being without actually binding myself to the identity of being a CEO or being a mail manager or whatever is the case, or being a data scientist. Now, that's only a first exercise because what's really interesting about that is if you actually perform it, you really do, so let's call it a meditation action, then something opens up within you. It's a question, well, who really am I? Who fundamentally am I if I'm not that? After all, if you begin to think about your life, you almost invariably think about it in terms of education as being an instrument for being in the workplace, and then being in the workplace as conferring upon you a particular kind of identity, and then being involved in the in the, the kind of game of ascending some kind of ladder or another, whether it's promotions or status seeking or 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 greater compensation or whatever. Right? You've been playing that game long enough. So if you disidentify from even playing that game, all the while still performing whatever duties or responsibilities you have, and if you begin to ask the question, who am I? Why, why am I here if not that? Then you have some starting points. The third thing you can really start to do is pay attention. This is the more interesting one so far, is how it's actually not satisfactory. The first two exercises might bring you bring to the third, but you could also come to it some other way. You could say to yourself, wait a minute, is it really the case that the rest of my life is going to be, quote, spent doing this kind of work? That each and every day of my life is going to be ordered according to the dictates of work? That there is something that seems, if I just look at it closely enough, inherently unsatisfactory. Something that doesn't quite quite quench some kind of thirst I have. Then you're well on your way to what might be called seeking. And seeking can take place even as you have a job. And if you go from there, now that now you're actually keen on seeking, you're keen on wait, wait a minute, what is this? What is this whole damn thing about? If it's not actually about work first and foremost, at that point, then it's amazing what sorts of things might open up to you. You might start caring about other things. Now, this is usually people say, oh, you need to have a hobby. <laughs> Hang on a second, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? You know, usually older people say, well, you need to have hobbies that's a little bit too thin. I mean, I'm not saying you can't have a hobby or some hobbies, but there definitely are things in life or aspects of reality that reveal themselves to you that are much more meaningful than having a hobby. And those are the ones still to be discovered. Right? So you disidentify from, from claim that you just are a worker and then you um, you begin by slowly going into a deeper and deeper search or inquiry into yourself or into the sorts of things that you might start caring about. And that'll take you a long way, a long way away from the idea of being just a total worker.
1: That's uh, amazing and uh, I think a gift to people and very practical, if I will, uh, advice. Um, I might offer. Uh, step four would be subscribing to your uh, Total Work newsletter. So, so, if people if people did want to engage more, where um, where can they find uh, what you're um, working on and uh, writing about?
2: Right. I'm so I'm writing a book on Total Work and the newsletter which comes out once a week or once every two weeks can be found if you google my name andrew taggart newsletter or you probably include a link in the podcast it's going to be i think get review backslash andrew taggart or something like this
1: yeah i can link to it that's great well, fantastic. I think you've uh, offered uh, so a lot of wisdom for us today, and uh, I definitely learned several things. So thank you so much uh, for spending the time today.
2: Well, thank you very much, Paul. It was really a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Boundless Podcast. If you have feedback, guest suggestions, or ideas I should explore, I'd really love to hear from you.
1: One of the best things about this journey I've been on is connecting with all the people from around the world who are resonating with some of the ideas, some crazy, some better, some worse uh, that I'm putting out into the world. Uh, you can email me at paul at think-boundless.com or find me on the various socials, which I have link in my site. So I'm focused on keeping this podcast ad-free Uh, Clear of requests for ratings on various platforms. Basically, just want to keep it useful, interesting, and worth listening to. Uh, You guys hear enough about different underwear and sleep mattresses that people are pushing. I mean, how many mattresses can uh, people sell? It's unbelievable. Um, Anyway, if you do want to support this podcast and uh, support this crazy journey I'm on, uh, you can do that on Patreon through the show notes link. And this is just so much fun. And I really thank you for listening and the continued feedback and support.
0: Hey, all, thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing, but I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.